Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello, and welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're joined by Roosevelt Montaz. Roosevelt is a senior lecturer at Columbia University Center for American Studies and director of its Freedom and Citizenship Program, a program that introduces low-income high school students to the Western political tradition through the study of foundational texts. He is also the author of Rescuing Socrates, How the Great Books Changed My Life and Why They Matter for a New Generation. If this is your first time listening to us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a podcast where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on issues at the intersection of education and culture. We appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. For more information on CLT's mission and details about upcoming test dates, head to www.cltexam.com slash get started. Now, without any further ado, let's get on with the conversation. Welcome back to the Anchored Podcast, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. Uh, today, we have uh, an, uh, the author of a book uh, that I'm sure most of our listeners have heard of, Rescuing Socrates. There has been quite the buzz about this book. I have read it. Uh, it is worth your time. We have Roosevelt Montas with us today. Roosevelt, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Jeremy. It's a real pleasure to be here. So I, I just want to start off with a word of praise and gratitude. I'm so happy you wrote this book because um, at, at a time when uh, the classics, the liberal arts are uh, not valued or even under attack. Uh, you make a personal kind of testimony for what this kind of education meant for you uh, coming from South America to Columbia University. Um, Roosevelt, I'd love to start off at the beginning. Uh, tell us about your memories of, of education uh, growing up. Of course, you did not grow up in the U.S., but in uh, South America. Uh, what are yeah. some of your early childhood memories of school? Oh, wow. Um, you know, so I, I grew up in this rural village in the Dominican Republic um, and did kinder, first grade through fifth grade there. Um, failed the first grade twice, um, in part because a kind of a inability to adjust socially to the regimented mm -hmm schedule tasks demands that uh that's followed there you know education there it's kind of very i don't even know if traditional is the right word but it's rote memorization and repetition based and the main uh requirement in the early graces that you sit at a desk uh, quietly and do what you're told for hours mm -hmm. on end and i just found that to be impossible to do. Um, so I was put in school in the in that first grade one year earlier than my age because I was supposedly so smart. Mm -hmm. uh, but in fact, that was it, that was aborted um, very early on. It was clear that I was not ready. Um, and then the next year, when it was kind of my my year, mm. um, I was still not ready. And my father had the wisdom, really, that. After a few weeks in, when I was utterly miserable and um, the thing was just not working, he said, you know, he sat me down and said, you know, you 
if you're not ready now, we can wait one more year, but next year you got to do it. Mm. Um, and I agreed. I said, yes, we, we're, we're on. Um, and the next year, sure enough, I was now one grade behind age-wise, but I by then knew everything that there was to be known in first grade. You know, I, I, I could read, I could write. And then I was more like the teacher's assistant that year. Um, okay. And that's how I got through. But but the, my memory of school is uh, of this this kind of um, just boring and un- uninteresting, especially in the early grades. Just yeah. just very very hard to bear. As I got um, when I was in fourth grade, I was switched to a religious private private school rather than the public school hmm. where I had been. Okay. Um, and the education there was more kind of intellectually serious, so that was more engaging. It was still rote memorization based, but I was very good at rote memorization. Um, and I could sit still for longer. And um, so that was more kind of intellectually satisfying. And it actually was a very good education in terms of um, basic literacy, mm. and numeracy and science. So I remember, for example, that part of what that early education instilled was in me was a love for grammar. I um, just became very, very interested and kind of, you know, some kids are into wow. dinosaurs yeah. and some kids are into planets. <laughs> I was into grammar. <laughs> I've never heard that. That's amazing. <laughs> um, and that turned out to be extraordinarily helpful when I yeah. came to the United States and had to kind of graft on top of my Spanish literacy and my Spanish language, the acquisition of a second language, mm. English, just that okay. grammatical meta awareness I had of kind of this, this kind of awareness of the way language works and interest in the way that language works just was enormously helpful in my ability to mm. learn a second language as a teenager. Wow. Well, I love that. Uh, you don't go into too many details about this in the book, but growing up, um, was there kind of always a conversation going on in the house about the possibility uh, of moving to the U.S. or when it finally happened, was it kind of unexpected? It, there wasn't a conversation about moving it. You know, my mother uh, came first and she was sponsored by her brother. Um, those processes of sibling um, sponsorship take years. So kind of in the hmm. background, there was this sense that, oh, this was in the works. But, you know, as a kid, a year is an eternity. So this yeah. just happened maybe before, you know, it was, it was, it, it, there was a vague notion that this might happen. And then at the end, it happened quickly. My hmm. mother was summoned to the consulate for an interview. Uh, she went for the interview. She was granted a visa. She left a few weeks later. So the, at the very end, it happened very quickly. And it was devastating for me. Uh, I was nine. Uh, I was very close to my mother. Um, and then when she came to the United States, immediately she started working on bringing my brother and I, uh, my brother and me over. And then that happened. Um, that was also very in that case, it happened more quickly. Parents to child process goes faster. It's a higher priority in the bureaucracy. Um, and then it was clear that mom was here and she was kind of doing the paperwork for us to join her. And that took about two years. Okay. Um, there, there is a lot to be uh, upset about and uh, in kind of mainstream American education right now. Uh, and, and in many ways, we've seen a history of decline, at least over the past 40 years. But your story is one of encouragement and success uh, in the system coming here a- as an immigrant. Uh, tell us kind of this, this timeline of coming, not speaking English, and within, I believe, five, six years, you are setting foot on Columbia, at Columbia University. 
Yeah, um, I was I was very, very lucky. And, you know, I've reflected on this a lot. And um, part of what saved me was that I developed my primary relationship to schooling and learning back in the Dominican Republic rather than here. I noticed a dramatic difference in New York City. New York City is obviously the large, the large, largest public school district in the country. Some corners of it, or many corners of it, are deeply under-resourced and kind of chaotic and, and dysfunctional. Um, for middle school, I was in in in, in such a corner uh, for seventh and eighth grade, uh, very um, overcrowded and under-resourced school, and I was in the bilingual program, which often got kind of even the shorter end of the, of the resources. Um, And uh, I think that I was lucky because many kids I know whose relationship to schooling was formed in that environment where, you know, you are not treated with the kind of dignity and attention and um, humanity that really a child requires where you feel you're being kind of herded, you know, like, like if you're a cattle, Um, and and kind of just, I've seen many kids just get turned off to school and develop an adversarial relationship mm. to school, given the conditions under which they experience school in large public yeah. school systems. So some of my, I had some cousins, for example, who grew up here in New York, who had a really mm. entirely different relationship than I did to school. Um, so I came in seventh grade. It was very tough. Um, it was... Um, very, uh, very difficult period in my life, kind of just hormonally, socially, mm. um, in, in, in school. That was the local public school I went to. Um, mm-hmm. At the end of, the, of eighth grade, I graduated and then went to the local high school. By then, ninth grade, I went from bilingual into mainstream, which was fairly fast for two years to have developed enough, enough skills mm. Um, language skills to go into mainstream, but as I said, I had this 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 advantage, I think, in my interesting language. Um, so I had picked up enough English to go into mainstream, and then I was very lucky in the high school I ended up with, even though it just happened to be the neighborhood high school. Uh, Queens is the most diverse borough of the five in New York City, um, so my school was dominated by immigrants, and not by one group of immigrants, but mm. they were. Uh, Dominicans like me, there were Colombians, there were uh, Central Americans, there were Asians, both South Asians and East Asians. Um, and there was this culture among, it was a very large school, but it was, uh, there was a kind of culture among some of the higher achieving students that was very, very serious and rigorous. And that was my peer group. I ended up in, in kind of honors classes the, the the advanced tracks that led me to AP courses as a sophomore already. Um, and I, I just happened to end in this cohort of students that were very academically driven. And really, um, in some ways, had I not landed in, an, in a social environment that encouraged and that rewarded this kind of intellectual seriousness, God knows where I would have ended. But that was the, the, um, the those were the conditions that allowed me to flourish such that by the time senior year came in, I had a decent enough mm. record to get into, into a very competitive school like Columbia. Yeah. I, I did a ton of personal reflection as I was reading uh, Rescuing Socrates. I, I taught for three years in inner city New York at Progress High School from wow. 2004 to 2007. So this would be the uh, 
the Graham Avenue stop on the L train, if you're familiar. Wow. In, uh, in Brooklyn. And that was, yeah. what grade school was, what grades did you teach? So this was Progress High School. So it was grades nine through 12. High school, okay. Yeah, okay. mostly U.S. history. And um, population was about two thirds Latino, about a third black. Uh, and there, there was a ton of brokenness within the community. And I felt like in terms of content, we weren't, the, the students were starving for meaning and yeah. purpose. And yeah. we were not offering that at all you know and um it was an education devoid of any serious substance and so i did a lot of reflection about and and i think recalled things i may not i may have not recalled uh had i not read rescuing socrates so thank you for that um you know it it is it is heartbreaking to see it happen because i i you know i teach low-income high school students um every summer so I see, some, even though the, the students I teach tend to be the more academically ambitious ones, uh, like kind of, kind of the kind of student that I, that I was and that many of my peers were, uh, but I see it again and again where I have used the phrase failure by design to describe the outcomes of the public school system, of, of many of the urban public school systems. Um, given the resources, given the conditions, it's gonna fail. It's gonna fail most students. And the fact that we as a society do that, the fact that this is what we come up with for our students in the public schools is a really lamentable, scandalous, um, mm. but, um, and sad. It's, it's, it's really quite, quite a, a blot, I think, in our, in our society. So uh, tell us about this this discovery of Columbia. Were you looking at other elite institutions uh, at the time? I wasn't. Um, there was a teacher that I, who, whom I talk about in Rescuing Socrates, a social studies teacher who kind of took me under his wing and reading Socrates, reading Plato together and learning about Socrates kind of became mm-hmm. the, 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 the foundation, the bridge upon which we built um, our relationship. But he encouraged me to apply to Columbia. I, uh, first of all, was not looking for um to to leave home i i could not imagine could not countenance the possibility of moving again of kind of uprooting myself again and going to some random mm. place where i didn't know anyone so first off i just confined myself to schools that i could take the subway to um and columbia uh, mm-hmm. was such a school it was a very competitive school i didn't know what the ivy league was i didn't know really what I was getting into, except that here was this school that was the hardest school within my geographical zone. I was definitely going to apply to it. Um, mm. w- once I was kind of, once my, my, my teacher kind of encouraged me, steered me to it, it, it was it was an easy sell. I didn't know if I would go to it, especially Columbia had a, re- a residential requirement. You had to go live on campus. Uh, and when I applied to school, I wasn't sure that I wanted that. As my senior year progressed and the spring came around, and the home felt increasingly tight and and um uh my wings were were constrained in some way then i welcomed the 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 opportunity to go live on campus um so it was in, in some ways in some ways random um that is it was not a deliberate informed choice uh it was it was mm. it was a choice that i made on the kind of more most bare bones um indication that this would be a good place to be. Yeah. You, you know, the, the entire history for the past at least 50 years, maybe more, maybe going back to the 1950s, as I understand it, uh, has been universities and colleges really trashing any kind of a serious core curriculum. 
was this one of the main things? Did you know this going into Columbia uh, that this this core was going to be a main part of the education? I did not know that at all. Um, I, I, you know, sometimes I try to recall how I informed myself. Like, did I what catalog? There was no internet, of course, so it was like paper catalogs. I remember that at first. Mm. When I had co- I called and left a message with my address asking for an application, that's the way you did it back then. And I got an application from the School of Engineering, and I started filling it out. And some and the the guidance counselor at the school said, "No, no, this is the School of Engineering. You don't want to be an engineer, do you?" It's like, "No, I don't want to be an engineer." <laughs> oh, there's another school called Columbia that is the right uh-huh. one. So then I called again. Um, so I did not know about the core curriculum at all. Um, and maybe that, maybe hmm. somehow that made that made me more receptive or something. But I, 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 I did not know that I was doing something special. This is just what you did in college. This is just what I was mm-hmm. given to do. So I did it with complete, um, complete openness and complete kind of devotion. This was just this was the opportunity that was being given to me. Only gradually that I came to awakened to everything that a core curriculum means and just how mm. peculiar, how unique um, it is to be experiencing that kind of education with the faculty and the peers that I was doing it. Um, the, the, the privilege of that and just how formative that experience turned out to be, of course, only came into view later. So you, you focus on four authors, four thinkers in rescuing Socrates. Uh, I believe it was Gandhi, Augustine, Freud. Who's the other one? Plato. Plato. And I, I don't think I, maybe anybody in the, the history of, uh, of thought has appreciated both Augustine and Freud as much as you seem to <laughs> in rescuing Socrates. And, and I was forced to rethink Freud and maybe the value he has. Uh, yeah. So tell I'm us so a glad. Bit. Uh, about why why these four uh, and uh, why why they're special to you? There are a couple of things that that came together to produce those four as as the writers that I would choose to kind of exemplify the meaning of a liberal education and in particular the meaning of a liberal education in my own life. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them is that. When I read each of these authors, at the time I read them in my life, I was um, especially fertile ground for their for their thinking. Spe- spe- they were especially productive, seminal, generative. Um, mm. You know, I read Augustine my first year of college when I was trying to figure out who I was, trying to figure out what the meaning of this um, religious experience I had had um, in, in in high school. Um, what was that? What did that mean for the rest of my life? Who was I? Well, who, you know, what was God and, and, and what was my relationship to the mm. church? What was my relationship to the Bible? Um, there were very kind of burning questions for me. So reading Augustine um, was uh, just right. Reading Augustine landed um, very kind of at full power. Um, its full potency hit me mm. um, because of the place where I was in my life at that time and the the particular questions that were kind of worrying me. Um, Same happened with with Plato when I started reading Plato and and Plato I encountered in high school. And Plato is really the figure that opens everything up for me, uh, Plato and Socrates. Um, It brokers, as I mentioned, this very close relationship with a mentor. Um, Hmm. 
in in high school. Um, Freud and Gandhi also came in came into my life at times when when I was receptive to what they had to say or what they had to say kind of flipped a switch. It opened up new ways of thinking about the world and ways of thinking about myself. Um, so part of the choice of those four is, I might say, idiosyncratic, right? They happened to uh, appear in my horizon at the right moment, mm. at a moment when I was receptive to them and ready for them. Um, but there are there are other reasons that 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 make those four especially salient in my development. One is that all four of those thinkers are supremely concerned with self-reflection. Um, mm-hmm. Augustine, you know, Socrates says the examined life, the unexamined life is not worth living. Freud, of course, is all about understanding the mind. Uh, Augustine is about understanding his interiority and the, his own kind of spiritual trajectory towards conviction and and, and uh, conversion to Christianity. Gandhi is also a huge experimenter on the self um, and is always engaged in these very radical religious practices in the search for what he calls truth. Um, so all of these all of these writers exemplify a kind of quest for self-understanding, um, mm-hmm. which I think is at the center of the project of liberal education. Achieving some kind of self-understanding is really um, at the center. Of, of liberal education. Uh, one other thing that that these authors exemplify is, a, is, is my idea that general education at the college level ought not be subordinated to academic specialization. That is to mm. disciplinary scholarly specialization. That is that somebody who's trained as an Americanist as I am has something uh, can get something meaningful and valuable from Augustine without being a medievalist and something from Freud without being a psychologist and something from Gandhi without being a Hindu and something from mm. uh, St. Augustine without, without being a Catholic. Um, that is, well, something, I said Augustine twice, um, something from Plato without being a philosopher. Um, that is that, that these books speak to us as human beings that these books are able to address questions that concern us by virtue of our humanity, not by virtue of our scholarly specialization. So Mm. I don't have scholarly expertise in any of those writers. I I don't read the languages in which those writers wrote, yet I can incorporate them into a whole vision of education and understanding of the world and myself in it um, that simply is based on our shared humanity. Um, and, and, and general education at the undergraduate level has generally been subordinated to scholarly expertise in a way that has actually um, weakened and drained its, its humanist vitality from, from the project. Uh, I think for listeners of the Anchored Podcast, and, and by the way, listeners, uh, thank you for an amazing May, all-time record downloads, almost almost 15,000 downloads total for the month of May. So thank you for that. Uh, but look, with the anchored audience, there's there's a deep appreciation, certainly for Augustine Plato, and I, I think Gandhi as well. I, I don't know that, that Freud would be in that mix. I think that there's some suspicion. Has he been radically under, um, has he been misunderstood? I think so, or at least... Um... Well, it's a, it's a complex it's it's a complex story, and let me say about Freud 
that interestingly, Freud has been of the four, the figure that has drawn drawn the most um, polarized responses. There are so many people that have come to me and said, thank you for writing about Freud. I'm so glad that you uh, wow. are, are rescuing Freud, somebody said. <laughs> Um, and then there are other people yeah. who have come to me and said, you know, I, I, I totally see why those other authors are there. Freud, I'm not so sure why Freud is there. So it, it, has, it, it has certainly been the, the odd man out of the four. Um, but Freud has been underappreciated in certain senses, um, but not in others, because Freud has been enormously influential in, say, in, in academia. Psychoanalysis as an, as an interpretive paradigm has been mm -hmm. very influential in literary studies, um, in anthropology, in sociology, in art history. Uh, Freud has been one of these thinkers that has, that has, like Marx, Marx is another example, that whereas Marx's kind of political and economic project failed, it, it just, it, what he thought he was, he was doing and trying to do didn't work, yet he introduced a way of thinking and understanding the world that proved to be enormously powerful kind of intellectually. Same thing happens with Freud. Um, Another way in which Freud has been uh, very influential is in, in, in it has penetrated popular culture more than the other three, for example. People talk about Freudian slips, they talk about childhood trauma, they talk about needing therapy, they talk about having an inflated ego. La <laughs> Freudian categories and language and analysis are constantly coming out in, in just like popular discourse. People have never heard about Freud. Freud, however, and, and he's to blame for some of this, it's, it, it has. Um, Many of his clinical theories have just proved to be um, flawed. Um, you know, he saw himself as a scientist, as a as a mm. as a doctor that was um, engaged in a kind of clinical relief of mental agony in his patients, um, and for that he developed a whole bunch of theories and sometimes kind of dogmatic um, accounts of the way that the mind worked that um, have turned out to be not, not correct, uh, that have been superseded. So many people focus on that. Many people, many people who have not even read Freud will say, oh, but Freud has been discredited. F Freud um, is not really taken seriously by psychologists today, um, which is true in many cases, yet the talk therapy, which psychiatrists use, mm psychologists use, counselors use, family um, counseling, marriage counseling, all of these forms of intervention into the psychic health of an individual and his or her primary relationships are all born out of Freud and all kind of exist in the Freudian, um, in the Freudian framework. Now, so much for Freud's influence, but let me just say one more thing about not just kind of his influence in academia mm. and, in, and in popular culture, but the fact that Freud introduces something, and this is, I think, the nub of why Freud is important, this notion that we are not fully in control of our thoughts. We're not fully in control of our emotions and of our consciousness. That there is, there is mass amount of stuff that happens under the radar hmm. that, that determines your thinking, but you're not aware of it as such. Um, you know, sometimes we, I, I use this phrase that, that a teacher of mine used, the reasons that we give ourselves for doing the things that we do are never the real reasons. And this is something that sometimes mm -hmm. we, we, we just come to realize that, you know, five years ago, I made this big decision and, and I told myself that this is why I was doing it. But five years later, I realized that actually I did it for a different reason that I wasn't ready to 
admit to myself or to grapple with. So that illustrates the fact that our mentation, our, our, our mental life is quite complicated and layered. Mm. And if you live a life that is that takes that seriously, you have a certain kind of skepticism and humility vis-a-vis -vis your own mechanisms mm. and certainties, a kind of attention to, um, you know, why did I forget that? Um, am I really feeling this? A kind of, he gives you a set of tools to explore your own mind. Um, okay. uh, that, that are really, really, really powerful. And that's what, that's what, that's the aspect of Freud that seems to me to have, to have been underappreciated and, and, and undervalued in, um, in general education, perhaps in society, people, people just don't mm. like the idea that there's a lot of unconscious stuff happening for them and that their thoughts may have motivations that they are not aware of. Um, that's just an uncomfortable idea. So um, I, I wish people took that more seriously. I, I want to ask you about a concern that I, I think some of our, our listeners have. Um, you know, the classical renewal movement, uh, there's a recovery of the liberal arts, there's a recover, recovery of the classics. This is happening at charter schools. It's happening at classical Christian schools. It's happening in the homeschool arena. Homeschool students, you know, discovering... Uh, Plato and Aristotle and Homer and the great tradition. Uh, I, I know there is a concern, and I, I want to take this concern seriously, of this this movement uh, getting kind of politically hijacked or being seen uh, as a movement that is uh, primarily on the political uh, right. Uh, and, and there seems to be um, concerns on the right as well with uh, animosity towards tradition. And uh, I'm wondering if you can speak into this. One of the reasons I, I love this read is I feel like you could give rescuing Socrates to anyone, regardless of where they may, may be on the, the political spectrum, um, because it's also true that many people on the political right don't value the liberal arts uh, or the humanities uh, as well. So I'm wondering if you could uh, speak into that. Yeah, thank you. There is a, there is a kind of a, a, an angle of rejection of liberal education associated with the right that has to do with, you know, focusing education on practical things um, and a suspicion of kind of a suspicion of intellectual, um, intellectual life. Um, and then there is what there is from the left, a rejection of the tradition, um, you know, on kind of moralistic social justice grounds, you know, the idea that this tradition is patriarchal, that it's mm. uh, marginalizing of, of, of um of the weak that it's um sexist that it's elitist um and so that's unfortunate right that 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 you have um from both the right and the left a kind of illiberalism that mm. is that is uh attacking liberal education i should say however that that is not is not a symmetrical rejection because as the reception of my book has proven uh political conservatives and kind of the right of center uh, region of the political spectrum is way, way more receptive to the idea that the classics matter, to the idea that there is something of value in this text, in this tradition of debate, in this tradition of, of, of writing, in this tradition of expression, um, that there is something of value there that ought to be somehow uh, important, somehow foregrounded in the education of a student. That position has largely been abandoned by the left, especially the academic left. Um, the, the, the dominant uh, approach, dominant kind of paradigm in the academic left is that this tradition is somehow tainted, that this tradition is, is somehow mm -hmm. oppressive, and that 
um, our our kind of aspirations for liberation and social justice demands that we either condemn that tradition or avoid that tradition, certainly not privilege it as, as, as an object of study for our students. Um, part of what that's done is that it has seeded the idea of great books education to the political right. Um, mm. and, and that has been, I think, to the great detriment of the left. Uh, many of the great political thinkers and activists and, 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 and social justice warriors um, from the left have been schooled and trained and inspired by this tradition. Mm. So I You're think, it, it, yeah. yeah, it has been a, a way of kind of impoverishing the intellectual um, heft of the left today um, mm. to, to reject, to reject that tradition, leaving it therefore as kind of the, ex the, the nearly near exclusive um, banner for the right um, to say, you know, we support great books. We do great book summer programs. We introduce great books into our college curricula, into our high school curricula. Um, but in fact, this tradition is not is not politically left or right. The one the one thing politically that you can say about this tradition is that it tends to support this value of individual freedom and autonomy in a fairly complicated way, for sure. For example, you know, think of Freud. The, 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 what kind of freedom do you have if you if you take Freud's ideas? Um, uh, seriously. So besides this very broad liberal, liberal, not in the sense of as opposed to conservative, but liberal in the sense of valuing mm. the idea of individual self-determination and individual freedom, um, besides a general support for that notion, um, this tradition is uh, not left and not right. Um, mm. It is a tradition that that can be equally deployed and embraced by people who lean right or who lean left. Yeah. And, and by the way, that, that was one of the most thoughtful commentaries, uh, I, I think, so spot on. Are, are you optimistic? And we, we had Cornell West on the podcast. Uh, are, are you optimistic that this kind of education is going to make a recovery uh, on the, the political left as well, which is really where we have uh, the, the overwhelming weight of, of mainstream academia right now? I'm not sure. Um, I would say that the the this ideological rejection of them reached its high water mark. That is that there is that that that, that the dominance of that idea is receding, um, so that there are more people like me who are um, kind of politically from the left who are advocating and championing this this kind of education. Um, but that's not the whole story because i fear that that is that that kind of mini revival of great books interest even in the academic left um is happening in the context of a much larger bifurcation between mm -hmm. um education that is loosely speaking liberal education but less and less accessible to everyday people, more kind of for the for, for the already privileged elite um, with vocational, technical, pre-professional education, much of it online for everybody else. Um, so I am I'm, I'm, so I can say that I am optimistic that the um, the ferocity of the rejection of, mm. of the tradition uh, will continue to abate. But I am not optimistic. I'm quite worried about our capacity as a society to continue to expand 
the reach of liberal education to non-privileged, non-elites in society. Um, it, it may be that we have reached the high water mark in that. That is that access to liberal arts education is becoming less accessible to the everyday person rather than, uh, rather than more as it did for much, for, for much mm. of the post-World War II period. Uh, tell us about reception. Uh, I, I mean, there really has been quite a buzz about this book. Um, I, I, I'm going to be at a couple of classical uh, conferences this summer, the SCL Summer Conference, ACCS Conference, the Circe Institute Summer Conference. Uh, people are going to be talking about Rescuing Socrates. It is a book a lot of folks in this movement have already read. Um, ha- have you been pleased with the reception? Are people buying this off the shelves at Barnes & Noble? And I have certainly been pleased with um, the attention the book has gotten. You know, one, one writes a book uh, and puts it out there, and there's a lot that is beyond one's control and a lot beyond the quality of the book. Um, you know, sometimes I, I joke to myself, you know, if the, if the week the book had come out, um, Joe Biden would, would have had a heart attack. Uh, they would have got, there would have gone the attention that, that the book have gotten. Um, yet the book somehow touched a nerve, um, in the culture and in the conversation. So I, uh, I've been enormously gratified to see that people who had not been talking about this now are, or that people who had been talking about this and, and that felt kind of like a voice in the wilderness have found a powerful echo uh, not in the wilderness, more that, that I've seen some of, some of their concerns uh, get a broader a broader audience and a broader conversation. I've been enormous, enormously pleased by the fact that it has actually inspired some uh, people to to rethink their general education programs in, 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 in colleges. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has inspired people to start summer programs of the kind that I teach for low income uh, high school students, introducing them to kind of the great books in the in the uh, in the in the political and literary tradition. Um, so that has been uh, very, very, very satisfying. I've, I've been very pleased um, by that. I have no idea how that translates into sales. I think this is a this is a, a book that um, may have a, a a bigger impact in the kind of intellectual conversation than in the marketplace. I don't know. I mean, obviously, many, 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 many copies sell. Uh, but but what I hope is that it has. Uh, that they, that it has an impact in in our in kind of our our intellectual conversation, mm. um, and that may not be a mass conversation. It may be a conversation that's more confined to people who care about about curricula, people who care about higher education or or K through twelve education. And I'd be extraordinarily uh, uh, pleased if if the impact is on curricula, the impact is on what actually students experience when they enter a, a, a general education program, or even people like you who are doing work at the high school level, that it, that, that it fosters mm. and strengthens uh, access to liberal education for, um, you know, for students who, who may not have thought of it or may not have had access to it um, otherwise. I'm going to read an endorsement here from uh, Dr. Anika Prather. So Anika has been on the Anchor podcast uh, three times and spoke at the CLT Higher Ed Summit uh, this past September. Uh, Dr. Prather says, in Rescuing Socrates, Roosevelt, Roosevelt Montas tells his story of moving as a lost, lonely 12-year-old from the Dominican Republic to New York, then eventually finding himself by studying Aristotle, Augustine, Plato, and many others in the core curriculum at Columbia University. Montas takes the reader on an inspiring journey where we come to realize how the power of these texts helped a young immigrant and man of color recreate his heritage and a sense of identity 
in a foreign land. Love that. I feel like that was a great summation of what I read in the book. Uh, Roosevelt, final question for you. We always conclude the Anchored Podcast by asking our guests, uh, what is the book that has been most formative for you? Uh, I have a guess, having read the book, I'm not sure if I'm right. So my, my guess would be the Confessions. Uh, is that is that the one or would you go somewhere else? I would go somewhere else. Um, and But the Confessions is pretty close because I think that okay. the book that has actually been most formative to me has been has been the Bible. Um, oh, wow. and the, okay. yeah, and the King James version of translation of the scripture in particular, um, you know, when I, at the period when I was learning English at the, at the period when I encountered Socrates at first, um, at the mm. period when I was, um, kind of figuring out life in, in the United States, I had this powerful religious conversion, um, and read the Bible, um, you know, with a tremendous devotion, seriousness, and discipline, um, I, I, I would read, you know, for hours every day, um, mm-hmm. the Bible. Um, I, in, 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 a, in a period of three or four years, I went through the entire thing several times. Um, wow. And uh, that had a really formative, you know, not, mm-hmm. I should say, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a Christian today. I don't identify as a Christian. Although I'm 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 kind of a, a deeply spiritual person and have very profound respect for for faith um, and for people of faith, um, mm. and that's you know so that's why Augustine is a is a good guest because part of the reason why I love appreciate and find Augustine so meaningful is because of his of his faith is because I I I I can I appreciate that and it's not. A turnoff for me. Uh, part of that influence is, is 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 that I kind of felt in my heart, in my mind, mm. uh, what the meaning of a deep faith and of a kind of reverence before, kind of the the, the awesome, the awe uh, before before existence. You know, when when I was religious, I would have said before God. Now I would say something like before the fact of existence, the mystery of existence. Um, so. Um, you know, I, the Bible is still the book that I can quote best uh, and that mm-hmm. I know most thoroughly of all the books that I know. Yeah, we're here with Roosevelt, Roosevelt Montas, the book, Rescuing Socrates. Uh, Roosevelt, thanks so much for being with us today. It's my pleasure, Jeremy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Anchored. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends and colleagues. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.